The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. April, when I say the American West, what immediately comes to mind? Well, definitely I would say cowboys. Um, I have a a little bit of a funny story. Apparently my mom told me um, not too long ago that sometime when I was like around three or four, I asked her if she was alive when the cowboys and Indians were alive. Wow. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) that really speaks to the fact that the American West is this almost like mythical place, right? In the popular imagination. And as you've just attested to, it's inhabited by these, you know, ubiquitous cowboys and Indians, damsels in distress, heroic homesteaders, you know, gunslingers. And, you know, this cast of unforgettable figures that include people like Billy the Kid, Annie Oakley, Geronimo, And that these legendary individuals I just mentioned were real people just adds to this aura and mystique that surrounds the wild, wild west. And I think we definitely have Hollywood to thank for that. I mean, how would I have even known what this was as like a three or four-year-old if it wasn't for probably seeing it on television? You know, and, and think about all of the many Westerns that have really immortalized and romanticized the West, you know, films like Wyatt Earp, um, one of the Back to the Futures, Maverick. I mean, the list goes on and on. Oh, yeah. And the one and only Western that I ever worked on, which is funny because in New Mexico, people work on Westerns. That's what you do. (laughs) But the one and only Western I did when I worked in film was this Adam Sandler Netflix film called Ridiculous Six. And it really purposefully played into this you know, the ridiculous nature of these enduring tropes and stereotypes, which I am also certainly guilty of reveling in too. And that was, of course, before I started studying the history of the U.S. West. In April, I was actually quite surprised to learn that even historians are not exempt from the romanticism of the so-called American West. Well, dress listeners, today you can join Cass and I in forgetting what you think you knew of the West, because today's guest is here to tell a very different story. And this is a history that has not casually been lost to time, but one that our guest argues was actively forgotten and ignored by chroniclers of America's past. So today we welcome Dr. Peter Bogue, the author of the groundbreaking 2011 book, 
Redressing America's Frontier Past. And as the title suggests, Bogue is here to address and redress the traditional narratives that dominate the histories of the American frontier. He does this by centering and celebrating the many individuals who challenged and transgressed the socially prescribed sex and gender binaries of the 19th and early 20th century in the American West. And that many of these individuals were likely LGBTQI makes Dr. Bogue's book all the more important. So these are not just individuals you read about in American West frontier history. Bogue introduces us to people like Canada's Mary Johnson, who came to California in the 1890s and unable to support herself became Frank Woodhull. And she told the Idaho statesman after her identity was uncovered, quote, I put on a man's suit of clothes, learn to walk, talk, and work like a man. And ever since then, life has been so much more easy and pleasant. But while Mary Johnson might have used men's clothing to disguise her identity for practical purposes. Others like the New Mexican Mrs. Nash were by all accounts trans. And by recovering and sharing these individuals' stories, Bogue reveals just how central and ubiquitous these individuals were to the daily life of the American frontier, even if chroniclers of this history have chosen to ignore and exclude their very existence. But ignore them they can no longer. Dr. Bogue is a professor of history at Washington State University in Vancouver. He earned his PhD in history at the University of Oregon years ago and has since taught and published widely on topics related to the history of the American West and the history of North American society, culture, sexuality, and gender. And we are so pleased to have Dr. Bogue on the show today. Welcome. Peter, welcome to Dressed. It is such a pleasure to have you here with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's all my pleasure. So today we are here to discuss your book, Redressing America's Frontier Past, which really seeks to recover LGBTQ individuals who have long been overlooked, long been forgotten by American West historians, and not just any LGBTQ individuals, but those that are quote unquote cross-dressed or cross-dressers. So people that basically dress in the clothing that is not of, of their sex, right? So men dressing as women and, and so on. So can you just tell us what inspired this book? And then maybe also clarify your decision to use the term cross-dressing and dresser, because that's really not something we really hear very much today. Yeah, that is actually a very problematic term. And one that I did address and try to problematize in my book. But let me talk first about the project. I'm working on my fourth book now. And well, even of all the articles and books that I have written, this was the project that was, I think, really the only project that was unplanned. It was something that I completely fell into. And so uh, usually I think of a project that I want to work on, and then I start the research and so on. And this was just the reverse of that. It was something I just fell into. And when I started, I had no idea I was going to actually write a book on the topic. I was working on my second book, which deals with the queer history of Portland, Oregon, and the Pacific Northwest. It's a book that ended up being mostly, well, principally about men, um, men who had sex with other men. Many of these people I feel comfortable calling gay. Many of them I don't. 
I originally intended to write that book to include women, but as I was doing the research in uh, trying to find uh, sources on the topic, it was very, very difficult to find uh, the sources. And I ended up using mostly public documents, so things like arrest records, newspaper articles, court materials, and women, because of women's place in society, were simply largely excluded from the public world. And so they didn't end up in these documents. So I had to change my book from lesbians and gays to gay men and then men who had sex with uh, other males. And while I did this research, only occasionally would I come across something about women that was anywhere within the realm of what I was looking for. So I came across a few articles of women in the Northwest or people I understood to be women at that time and society at that time understood to be women who dressed in men's clothing and uh, came to the attention of newspapers. Either they were arrested because in some places that was illegal to do, to dress in clothing, not befitting your sex, or they may have lived as men their entire lives, but when they died and their body was being prepared for burial, there was something of a shock in the community when it was discovered that they had a body that wasn't what people had thought this person had, but was a female body. And so I just collected those uh, few articles, and I thought one day I would do an article on women who dressed as men and lived in the Pacific Northwest. And I had found three that I had a good amount of information on, one in Washington State, one in Idaho, and one in Oregon. But when I finally got that second book done and was really starting to do a little bit more research, technologies for doing historical research really changed and digitalized sources became more available, especially digitalized newspapers. And this opened up new possibilities for me to find. And in fact, I did find a huge number of individuals like this, not just people understood to be women who dressed as men in the West, but I also came across in the newspapers stories of people understood to be men who were dressing as women. And so I had all this material. And then I also conducted more traditional forms of historical research, going to archives. And I had so much, I was able to write a book. It's such an incredible book, I just have to say, and and so incredibly refreshing, I feel like, in our field as well, to see this sort of work happening. Because when you look at the historiography of American West history, for instance, it's very centered around you know, written by white heterosexual males about white heterosexual males. So to find this book and to read this book, and it was written in 2011, and I think I've had it on my shelf for a couple of years now, honestly. It's just an incredible feat of research and so incredibly important. So thank you very much for writing it, for one. Well, you're welcome. And, you know, of course, my research built on the work of so many people, including white heterosexual males, right. but especially women. <laughs> 
women who were searching for other stories in the American West. And so my my work really built on them. And it also built on the tremendous amount of LGBT history, not in the American West per se, but LGBT history that really started to be written Oh, in the in the 1980s and 1990s. Now, it, as far as the book goes, you know, your question was why the term cross dresser. The book is not only about people we today consider transgender, right? And it, that term didn't exist back then as we have it, and so the term really didn't exist. So I. Although I use transgender occasionally in the book, you know, one of the most fascinating things about history to me is going back. And the task of the historian is not just to try to tell stories from the past, but it's the historian is supposed to try to excavate from the records the mindset of the people who lived it, how they thought, what concepts they use, how they organized and categorized the world. And with that, and the fact that I had discovered such a range of people who were dressing in ways considered inappropriate for their sex, transgender simply wasn't a word that really fit with many of them. Because I do write in my book about people who um, maybe used clothing to disguise who they were in order to carry out a burglary or a bank robbery, that sort of thing. And those people, I wouldn't, they may have been transgender. The records did not indicate that at all. So I had to try to find a really comprehensive term. And so while I think people who identify as transgender might find the word cross-dresser offensive, the book isn't solely about transgenderism. It is about people who chose, for whatever reason, to dress in ways that society felt was not appropriate for their sex. And so I, you know, that was just kind of the most the broadest, most comprehensive and descriptive term that I came up with. And I understand that there are many problems with it. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, it's problematic too. I think you write that it's limiting and that, you know, the, I, the very idea of crossing is crossing from one gender to the next gender and, you know, fitting very much within that gender binary that we've worked so hard to get rid of. Right. <laughs> um, and, uh, but it, I think probably for you, it's like also the easiest way to describe people who are dressing regardless of why they're dressing, but they're dressing in what was then defined as opposite of their sex, as you said. And while we're talking about it, I'm going to skip ahead to my next question, because I think it is really important that we talk about American and European understandings of sex, sexuality, and gender during this period, because like you said, People, and that's including scientists and doctors, they really just did not have the same understanding of the differences between these three categories. So they're kind of all lumped together, right? And something that became known as sexual inversion. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So science was just 
Well, there have always been explosions in the history of science, (laughs) but the late 19th century was an especially explosive time in science. And one of the new sciences that developed in the second half of the 19th century is the science of sexology. And the people who were scientists who studied sexology were known as sexologists. So sexologists, they they were interested in trying to understand the full range of human sexuality, and they folded into that gender. In fact, gender could not be separate from sex at that time in their mind. And so someone's sexuality was linked to their gender performance. And so today, while we may separate transgender, a gay, lesbian, even intersexual, or bisexual, or transvestism, all these different things that are separated out from each other in the 20th century, they were all lumped together into this one term, sexual inversion. But the process of sexology in the 19th century, late 19th century and into the early 20th century was further than subdividing and categorizing individuals who, as science progressed and studied more and more people, began to find patterns that suggested there was something more complicated than this one overarching term, sexual inversion. So, you know, speaking about the relationship to clothing, transvestism, the term transvestism and people who were understood to be transvestites, and that was very different from how we later understand it in the latter part of the 20th century. But that term and those ideas really started to formulate in the first years of the 20th century. And I think the term was coined sometime around 1910. And so slowly peeling off from sexual inversion would be this whole panoply of identities that we include LGBTQI. I questioning that sort of thing today. So it was a sexologist all thought of it as, as, as one group of people. And so trying to match up or figure out the differences between how scientists were thinking and then how everyday people were thinking about this. And then also people who might be understood by science to be sexual invert, how they understood themselves, trying to excavate that from the documents produced at the time was a really challenging thing to do, which is why I, you know, there are many of these people I never really was comfortable referring to as transgender others It was pretty clear to me the way they lived their entire lives. They probably thought of themselves as transgender. There may have been people who we would think of as gay or lesbian. There were definitely people I came across who were intersexual, keeping in mind those separate terms didn't exist then, but trying to figure that out from the records. Right, because you're you're literally just looking at records that is, say, a journalist writing about an interview they had with someone or having interviewed someone about someone. So 
you're kind of piecing together those sources to to kind of gain insight into their identity and and you know how they would have perceived their gender identity. Um, so not an easy task, but one I will say that you did incredibly well in this book. And you know the next question is obviously how does this relate to the American West? The American West has long been romanticized in literature, beginning in the 19th century and in Hollywood film. So much so that really what dominates the popular imagination could be argued as more myth than reality. You know, we have these narratives that are populated with this familiar cast of characters, those famed gunslingers, the outlaws, the iconic cowboy, the frontiersman, you know, who set his sight west, took his family or himself and, you know, well, they built America, right? So (laughs) there's arguably nothing more American than the American West or more white, masculine, and heterosexual. (laughs) And your book really challenges these associations. You actually argue that many of the ideals and national narrative histories that we associate with the American West were constructed in direct reaction to these cross-dressing individuals. So how how so? Great question. I think a good way to try to, to understand um, this idea of Western myths and stories and even history being created in direct opposition to people who socially today or when historians were writing about this or myths were being corrected were unacceptable characters in this landscape. A good way to think about it is, you know, what's currently happening in our society with the calls for, and in some cases, people taking matters into their own hands and toppling statues dedicated to the Confederacy. So those have been invested with meaning that shrouds other meanings and shrouds a lot of pain in our history. And so these Confederate monuments on the surface for many celebrate the lost cause, this romantic notion of the plantation South. So some people also think that these statues memorialized soldiers or generals who were particularly good Uh, at their craft. But we know, and we're talking about this now, that these, these monuments have also been erected in opposition to African Americans. In fact, they were created during a time when white supremacists were retaking over control in the American South after the loss of the Civil War. And they were excluding from the story, they were excluding from history, they were excluding from society, African American people. And so if we think of the Western myth, the myth of the American West, if we think of it as a statue, how it was constructed, how it was erected, on the surface seems to celebrate a certain narrative of American history. But underneath of it, of course, it is purposely excluding from the story other people. And so uh, long have 
historians of Native Americans uh, demonstrated the ways in which the Western myth is a racist myth against African Americans. I wanted to look at how the Western myth was also created in opposition to people who were, surprisingly, when you look at the records, all over the place and very much a part of the story. Yeah, so that's one of the conclusions of the book, is that this uh, Western narrative that embellishes and celebrates and memorializes a certain white heterosexual masculinity in the American West. It was created in opposition to African Americans. It was created in opposition to Chinese immigrants. It was created in opposition to anybody who wasn't considered white against Native Americans. But it was also written in opposition to people who were neither masculine nor heterosexual. And now we get to learn about some of these incredible individuals that you've uncovered. And I had to say that I loved, I love how you wrote this book because each chapter starts out with a story of an individual and it often includes an image or images of those person. You know, there's so many books that are written in academia and in history that just don't have this level of storytelling and I think it's so clear that you worked so hard to recover and uncover these once lost people that I really appreciate that you took the time to introduce us to them and their story. And you do that with every single chapter. And, you know, it's really about recovering these lost individuals. You restore their humanity in so many ways. You're respecting their identities, their sexualities. And you're looking at a time when, as we've said, the press, the society in which they lived would have otherwise demonized them, right? So I have to know, how did you go about finding these people? You did mention a little bit about digitized sources. Can you just tell us a little bit more about your sources before we dive in and meet some of these people? So, of course, all of the sources were uh, problematic. Um, I never was able to directly interview any right. of the <laughs> subjects. Uh, and very few of them left records. There, there were occasionally some who did that I came across. And so that was a great find. Yeah, so I started, I really did start with newspapers. And that clued me into uh, some people who maybe showed up in, you know, a really good example is Harry Allen, who was born Nell Pickerel from Washington State. This individual, you know, I came across newspaper article after newspaper article after newspaper article. And so I was able to kind of sketch a biography of his. So this is a person I would consider transgender, female to male. So I was able to put together a biography. And then it allowed me you know, finding out where he was at a certain time, then I was able to look more carefully in 
other public records. You know, he was arrested in Portland, for example, in 1912. And so I went and looked at arrest records. I happened to just chance upon a dissertation of a woman who was doing, uh, writing her dissertation on sociology. She was from Portland and she happened to just visit the city jail in 1912 to collect information about women who were incarcerated and Harry Allen happened to be there. And so uh, this researcher did an entire biography of Harry Allen in the dissertation. And so you know how history is. You could get these clues and you were able to, you know, then go to the public archives and find these things. Because as you also probably know, uh, public archives have been constructed, leaving out the stories of so many people. And so you don't typically go to a archive today. I mean, this is changing, thankfully. And, you know, ask to see the files on LGBTQ history. Uh, those don't exist. So you have to look through masses and masses and quantities of material to come up with these people. But the newspapers were really vitally important um, to do that for me, to kind of clue me in. And then it allowed me to go to census records to court documents, to arrest records. And then one day I was doing some research just on my family history. And my family, the Bogues, they lived in central Minnesota in the mid-19th century. And I happened to discover, I think it might have been on Ancestry.com, a county history of Meeker County, uh, Minnesota, and I was. It was published in 1876, and I thought, oh well, gosh, maybe my family. They were living there at the time. Maybe they ended up in this county history. They did not. I don't usually have good luck doing my family <laughs> history. But as I was going through this county history, I chanced upon an entire chapter uh, dedicated to a female to male person from New York who ended up in Minnesota in the 1850s and uh, worked kind of as a frontiersman there, uh, was part of the community. And then one day something happened and his clothing failed him and he was discovered to have the body of a woman. And it was a huge sensation in Meeker County. And the county history had an entire chapter written about him. And so sometimes it was just pure serendipity how I came across some of these material. It was, it was so much fun. I never had so much fun doing a project as this one. Yeah. And probably because you're just meeting all of these incredible people in these sources, right? And then tracking them down and trying to find more and more, like you said, of their biography and their history. So you mentioned Harry Allen. Um, there's so many people like him featured throughout this book. I would love if you would highlight a few of them for us and just tell us more about them. Well, okay, so another one that I found especially fascinating because this person was a little bit out of the ordinary, even for the type of people I was discovering and um, I otherwise discovered. Uh, this person's name was Bert Martin. His birth name was Bertha Martin. And Bertha was born in the 1870s 
in Missouri. Now, I came across the story of Bert Martin. This was another by pure accident. I had done some research on some cross-dressers in Nebraska, and then I traveled to the state archives in uh, Nebraska, in Lincoln, Nebraska, to do some follow-up in some newspapers that were on microfilm but hadn't been digitized. And uh, I was tracing this one individual, and all of a sudden I came across these stories about Bert Martin having been arrested around the year 1900 in uh, Nebraska for horse theft. And Bert Martin was arrested as a male, but when he got to the state penitentiary to serve his two-year term or whatever it was for horse thievery, his cellmate became somewhat suspicious that Bert was not a male. And the uh, prison authorities were called and they did a physical examination and they were convinced that Bert Martin had the body of a female. So they made him dress in women's clothing and they sent him to the women's side of the prison, which was much smaller because there were fewer women in prison. But as I dug into this story, I went back. One of the things I did was I went to the 1880 census to find Bert Martin with his family. And lo and behold, his name was Bertha Martin and he was noted in the census in Missouri as being a female. So, you know, following the records, the paper trail, court documents, these physical examinations, and Bert Martin's subsequent history, it became clear to me that Martin was intersexual, born intersexual. His parents understood him to be a female and raised him as a female. But for many people who have ambiguous genitalia or they're wrongly categorized at birth, as Bertha grew, she became, she understood herself to be male and uh, took on a male identity dressed as a man, um, and went out into the world as such, and even married and fathered children. So it was clear to me that Bert Martin was intersexual. So that was one of the most fascinating stories that I found. And so I really, and I was able to find a picture of Bert Martin that's in the book. And um, yeah, that story really had a deep resonance for me as a, a gay person and uh, some of the prejudices and discriminations that I faced in, in my life. Right. And there's so many stories about these individuals overcoming so much during their life. Many of them are being reported in the papers because they were arrested. Many of them many times being arrested because they continued to dress in clothing that was not of their sex. And that was illegal. That became illegal in a lot of places in America. So, you talk a lot, actually, in the book about how society handled men and women cross-dressers differently, um, specifically in the 19th century. Can you f- talk about maybe the many ways in which the decision of women to dress as men was first justified by society? Kind of part of this myth of the American West. People really tried to understand in terms that made sense to them why a woman would dress in a man's clothes. 
Yeah, and of course, there were many women who did dress in men's clothing that fit the narrative constructed about them, that these were women-identified women but because there were few, so few opportunities available for women as women, many of them decided to dress as men and uh, try to take advantage of male prerogatives. So a really good basic example of this is the number of women who wanted to travel to the gold rush frontier. And there are many gold rush frontiers in the American West in the 19th century. Um, but for women to go on their own to these places and live on, the, that was simply unimaginable, the dangers and just the freedom that a woman would demonstrate, her her, her freedom from male domination and uh, patriarchy to undertake such things. So it was just simply not allowed. But one way to do that would be to dress as a man and um, pass yourself off as a man and take advantage of prospecting uh, on, on your own. And of course, you know, there were other reasons to do this by, you know, appearing as a man, then you would be perhaps unmolested by other men. Okay, so there were a lot of women, identified women who did this. Now, I was curious, though, to what degree uh, some of these supposed women identified women, in fact, were not women identified women. And so a really good example of that was Joe Monahan in Idaho, came to the Idaho Gold Rush in the Owyhee Mountains in 1867, dressed as a male, uh, had been born in New York in about 1850, uh, had always, according to the stories of her family or her adopted family, uh, had always as a girl liked to dress in boys clothing and 1867 decided to dress permanently as a man head off to uh, Idaho and lived in this community as a man for 36 37 years until Joe died and his body was being prepared for burial and the people discovered that Joe was in fact um, or had the body of a female. So Joe would be an example, I think, of somebody who really was transgender. He always lived his life when he was able to make the decision to dress as a man. He lived his life as a man and he passed himself off as a man and he was largely accepted in his community as a man. There were some people over the years who had questions about Joe, uh, but they always accepted Joe as a man and just let him live the way he did. So there are actually cases where some of these people are accepted to a degree in their communities. So they weren't, you know, it wasn't, uh, they weren't all demonized. They, there wasn't prejudice against all of them, but there are cases of, of just the reverse of that happening. So you actually write about 
about Joe that newspapers, news articles circulate about him for years, and they really work to fictionalize his womanhood. Um, They work to explain away, basically, why he dresses a woman. They basically rationalize it. You know, some of the ways that that these women dressing as men um, were rationalized by society was job opportunity, travel. They could travel unaccompanied. They wanted to wander freely. They wanted to visit places that were off limits to them. Some of them did it because they were criminals. And they wanted to disguise their identity. So that happens. But by the end of the 19th century, you do write that there was this shift that has to do with the way that sexuality began to be understood, the creation of the gender binary system, something that you write about, you write about the gender binary, which we're all very familiar with as being a social construction, but also the sexuality binary. So you're either heterosexual or you're homosexual. Those sorts of things were starting to be considered and studied and understood. And as a result of that, and as a result of the, you know, the so-called new woman, you write that society and newspapers increasingly, quote, linked women's cross-dressing to matters of sexuality. Can you talk a little bit about that kind of shift at the end of the 19th century? Yeah. So, you know, in the 19th century, it was a little bit more innocent. Oh, she had to dress as a man because, uh, you know, the limited opportunities available. Or she had to dress a man because women couldn't travel on their own in the American West. Or, you know, what was a woman without a man to do? How was she to make a living? So that fit into this uh, narrative of you know the the West as kind of a um, kind of this wild frontier, and it would only make sense that a woman in this situation might try to live as a man in order to negotiate this difficult world. But as sexologists continue to do their work, and it wasn't just something that the scientific level, but society also was developing, they were kind of working in tandem together, science and uh, society, uh, coming up with these ideas about sexual inversion, homosexuality, uh, lesbianism, transvestism, as these ideas circulated and circulated more then uh, observers of people who didn't fit the gender norm in the West, people who might dress in the clothing of the opposite sex, they became increasingly suspect. Was there something more to a woman dressing as a man than a woman needing to do this because of the social exigencies of the time. And so it really was the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, where some of these individuals who really persisted uh, as dressing as men or women, depending upon what their sex appeared to be, but some of them were also discovered to be uh, having uh, relationships with other people thought to be of their same sex. And so as more and more of these people appeared in society or became known in society, then uh, these people started to be written out of that 
history. Now, there are many examples of people who persist in the popular imagination. Uh, some of the best known ones are like Calamity Jane. You know, she dressed as a male. She's always been uh, accepted as heterosexual. And I don't think, according to our terms today, that she was a lesbian or transgender. But someone like her was somewhat acceptable because there was no suspicion about her sexuality. Same with Joe Monaghan. Joe Monaghan lived uh, as a single man, never had a sexual relationship. So that was okay. And so Joe Monaghan became one of the better known. And in fact, in 1993, um, a feature film was made, uh, not a documentary, but a Hollywood fiction film uh, about Joe Monaghan's life. The director was Maggie Greenwald, and it's called The Ballad of Little Joe. And this story paints uh, Joe as a heterosexual woman. She, I, it's been a while since I've seen the film, but I think she suffers from physical abuse in her relationship with a man. She decides to escape him. The only way to do so would be to dress as a man. And she heads to Idaho and she lives there as a man, but has a sexual relationship with a man. Uh, it's just a woman who, uh, you know, because of the nature of society, had to do this. So she's portrayed that way in modern film as well. I mean, when you look at the story, it's kind of a very sad story that the director and the writer, Maggie Greenwald, tells about why a woman had to do this. But um, it also normalizes this individual as a but the other there are many other of these uh cross dressers who could no longer be normalized uh because there was just too much suspicion about them and this was especially the case for male to female uh, do we really have any good examples of male to female individuals in the history of the American West that anybody can name like a Calamity Jane or in some ways, Joan Monaghan, who's been remembered, or there's another character, Charlie Parkhurst in California. Uh, there, there really isn't because it was just too difficult to try to fit a male who decided to dress as a female into this increasingly white, masculine, heterosexualized version of the American West. And so these people are going to be written out of that history and in the process of writing them out, to go back to one of your earlier questions, this is how the Western myth was created in direct opposition to these people. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest 
to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O dot C-O. Society and, you know, newspapers, etc. were able to explain away, as we've said, the reason why a woman would dress as a man. It makes it exponentially harder if you're a male who's going to dress as, you know, the quote unquote weaker sex. Why would you do that? What could a woman possibly have that a man would want, right? Because he has all the power in society. And I especially love your chapter on, on, on race and how race really comes into play when society starts to address men dressed as women, because it really plays a central part. Uh, Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. And so probably the only male to female figure from the West whose story has been investigated time and time again by some historians, but is still not, you know, a household name is the figure we know of as Mrs. Nash. Um, we don't really know Nash. Uh, Nash was, the surname is uh, from one of her husbands. Uh, we don't really know what her first name, we know very little about her early childhood. Um, but what we do know about Nash, or some people called her old Nash, is that she was Mexican. She was born in Mexico, apparently, or in the Southwest, 
borderlands that became part of the United States, but her cultural ancestral roots are Mexican. And I point out in my book that part of the reason why Nash is remembered, if it remembered at all by historians and why the story is so interesting and can be safely dealt with is because, in fact, Nash is also racialized as a Mexican. So it's acceptable or it became understandable that men who dressed as women were also men who were from races other than the white race, whether this be Native Americans or African men or uh, Mexican men. Ah, it's understandable that they would become women because they were less than masculine anyway. And they are people who are marginalized. I'm not saying this. This is what the writers of this myth, the social belief, these are marginalized people who can be excluded anyway. So it's all of a piece. Uh, It's all of a piece with Mrs. Nash that she uh, became a woman because she's also Mexican. Right. And I mean, you see that really a lot during this period. This is the period of the Mexican-American War, where basically Mexico had its independence from Spain for about 25 years. And then the Americans come in and say, no, we want New Mexico. We want the Southwest, right? So you see them really marginalizing and discriminating against Mexicans as a way to justify Anglo-American expansion into territories. I mean, you see that that's the definition of colonialism, right? We're better than you in all these ways. And this is why. And the, and, and in fact, the feminine men or, or men who were dressed as women, um, anybody, they kind of looked at any excuse to kind of justify white Anglo heterosexual males and women were better, right? Well, this is part of the colonial story. Gender is very much a part of the colonial story because the definition of a male was not just someone who acted what was understood to be manly was the term and then later masculine, but it was somebody who had rights of citizenry. You know, women were excluded from the rights of citizens. They were citizens, but they didn't get the right to vote in many cases till the 1920s, many of them not until the 1960s. And today there's still questions about, um, you know, who as a citizen of the United States, who who can vote. So for a man, it wasn't just, you know, how you acted or how you dressed, but it was the things that define one as a man were independence, you know, the right to vote, the right to serve on juries, taxpaying people. Um, and so racial, what, they weren't always minorities. In some places they were the majorities, but racial minorities, for lack of a better term, men were considered less of a man because they were excluded from these rights of citizenry. So it wasn't just that they might, some might be seen as feminine, but seeing them as feminine or effeminate was that they weren't full 
male citizens of the country. Right. And it's just one of the many reasons, right? I mean, you write a lot about the Chinese bachelor societies. So Chinese are brought in to build the railroads and then they're immediately demonized, right? Um, They're they're brought in here. I can't remember when the act actually happens, but they're not allowed. 1882. 1882, not allowed to come in anymore. And then you get these Chinese bachelor societies where there's not a lot of women. And then it really becomes this reflection of all these social anxieties around all these Chinese men living in one place together. Super, super. It's, it's just an interesting study into human psychology. And then, of course, we talk about it all the time on dress, just about how the clothed body really becomes a site for all of those societal anxieties. So to put a woman in a man's suit and a man in a woman's dress and when that clothing so clearly defines what it is to be a man and so clearly defines what it means to be a woman, when that crosses or changes, you know, it just it, it freaked a lot of people out. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> well, yeah, but and not only that, but this is why so many people, like women who dressed as men, we know about so many because at one time or another, it was their clothing, their costume that failed them. How many never made it into the records because they were successful right. in, uh, you know, in keeping for them, what might've been a masquerade. Um, But because clothing was so gendered, a lot of people simply, you know, if you see somebody wearing pants, the automatic exception out of the corner of your eye, the automatic assumption then was that they were male. And so this actually helped many female to male dressers and the reverse male to female uh, carry off their masquerade because people were so conditioned to seeing clothing as male or female that they simply automatically accepted that somebody in women's clothing was a woman or somebody in men's clothing was a male. Yeah, and absolutely. And before we move on to my, what is my last question, I just want to make sure that we talk about Native American two-spirit people, because you do write about them in your book. That's not how they were referred to in the time. I think they're called Burdash or Burdash. You'll have to um, correct me on that one. But can you talk about their place in the historic record? Because it goes way, way back. I think the Spanish colonizers in the 16th and 17th century even wrote about these um, people in these communities, Native American communities. But if you can talk a little bit about the reverence within their own communities and cultures, that would just be wonderful too. Yeah. So I'm not a Native American historian And so I'm always a little bit careful and I'm not Native American. Um, And so I am always very circumspect about what I say. So I would prefer not to say too much and leave it to um, two spirit people or Native American historians to address this more full. And this is one of the reasons why they were very numerous and they had existed you're right from who knows and in some uh native american origin stories two-spirit people play central roles in navajo from your part of the country for example their story of their emergence from into this world, a key figure is a person who has 
kind of both genders um, or multiple genders. And many Native American societies didn't necessarily divide people according to two genders. They accepted third and fourth genders. There were some that did not. I think the Comanche are an example. Again, I don't want to go out too far on a limb with something that I don't know a whole lot about or I don't consider myself an authority on. But there were definitely some uh, indigenous peoples, tribes that did not accept uh, third and fourth genders. But there were many that did. So they they existed throughout the Americas and the early explorers and colonists and uh, murders from Europe encountered these and responded in many different ways, some violent uh, and killing of them, putting them to death, and others just seeing them as real curiosities. So they did exist. And I didn't want to do too much about the history of Two-Spirit for the many reasons I just uh, explained. But I did come across them. I had to deal with them because it was clear uh, that they existed. And it was clear to me, too, that they played a very important role in the development of the science of sexology and the interpretations of the relationship between non-normative sexuality and gender in the American West. So they do play that fundamental role in the book. Absolutely. And we're moving on to the conclusion of our talk today, but I have a couple more questions for you um, because your book really concludes about something we've hit on a couple different times throughout this interview, but the role of American sexologists and how integral they were in creating and upholding this frontier myth, right, that we've been talking about. So why was their work specifically relevant to the exclusion of LGBTQ individuals from the American West narrative? Yeah, this is a very complicated answer. And so I'm going to really simplify it to keep it short. So I, I think one of the, the integral ways in which sexologists uh, cleaned up the frontier of non-normative sexuality and non-normative gender is uh, the way in which they explain the reason why people became non-normative in their sexual, what was the cause of sexual inversion. And sexologists who were studying this in the late 19th century felt that sexual inversion was only increasing with the so-called modernization of society. So they identified the causes of sexual inversion with that which was modern. And this included urban living and changes in technology that they believe the body had difficulty adjusting to. And as the body had difficulty adjusting to, for example, electrical lighting that allowed people to stay up much later than they did in the old days when they went to bed when the sun set, or uh, riding on locomotives at speeds at which people never moved through space before. Sexologists believe, and other scientists, that, that this had an effect on the body and it weakened the body. And as it weakened the body and constitution, it allowed for 
all sorts of diseases to invade the body. And one of these diseases was sexual inversion or simply modern urban life. And so um, the Western myth, of course, is not a doubt. I mean, part of the Western myth, of course, is train robberies and that sort of thing. But the, the American West, the frontier West, is just the reverse of modernity. It's just the reverse of modern urban living. If sexual inversion is associated, is caused by modern living and modern urban living, then it is something that's not caused by life on the frontier. So this is how sexologists played a role in cleaning up the frontier of these people who were mucking up the story. <laughs> and we should say too, because we haven't said this yet, but so there was this part of the myth of the frontier is that it ended in 1890. Yeah. So right when, you know, we're ushering in the 20th century and all the modern and innovations and inventions that that brings is that we're also le quite literally leaving the so-called frontier um, in our past because it no longer exists. You know, this is one of these historical coincidences, but this is how it all fit together. The American frontier was perceived to end in 1890. And it's also when America was becoming modern. So this all fit together in explaining, you know, or, or explaining away uh, people of different genders and sexualities and removing them from the American story. This is not the American story. This is not the story of the frontier in the West. But in fact, it very much was. Yes. And removing them, but only to be recovered by you and your incredible book. <laughs> but I have to well, say, thank you. Yeah, it was published in 2011. And when I when I emailed you to request this interview, you said, you know, it's actually been you've been getting a lot more interest in it recently. And I have to know if you think why you think that is why you think your book is seeing um, renewed interest at this point in time. Yeah, it's it's kind of amazing. It's just been the last three or four years. I think maybe part of it is because it has kind of finally, a lot of the history books that historians write uh, end up only being read by other historians or academics. And this book has, you know, it's taken a while, I think, for it to kind of move beyond the academic circles. So that's part of it. So I've been getting, I mean, you're an academic, but I've been getting uh, requests uh, from non-academics. I've given interviews to Backstory. Uh, last summer, Sabrina Imbler, who works for Atlas, writes for Atlas Obscura, she uh, interviewed me. 2017, a blog in France, in Paris, Le Panetaire, interviewed me and put it on their blog in English, in French. And so it's been, it's moved out of academic circles. So I think that's part of it. And now I'm also working on an exhibit a museum exhibit for the Washington State Historical Society that hopefully will travel. So I think that's part of it. But also, it's just in the last few years that transgender issues have really become increasingly part of the news. 
I mean, transgender people have been around forever. And, you know, the transgender rights movement or activism, you know, certainly was starting by the 1970s, if not before. But it seems that transgender rights and transgender issues uh, are really starting to be taken seriously. There's a long, long, long way to go, as there are in the rights of all people and humanity. Of course, there's been these horrible reversions of President Obama, some of the executive uh, decisions and actions of President Obama in the current administration. But as these reversions and uh, repeals are happening, this is making it more of a an issue that people are learning about. So a lot of that's happening now. So I think that's part of it. Yeah. And honestly, I mean, representation is so important. And so I can only imagine as a trans person to see a book like this, to see yourself being written essentially back into history, because history and historiography of American West and across subjects has largely ignored that history. And so to see this sort of book, I just your intervention in the field is so incredible and so important. So I think that's definitely part of it, too. Thanks. I have, you know, some transgender people, even though, again, the book isn't only about transgenderism. I mean, in in a way, it is completely about transgenderism, because when a person, for whatever reason, begins to act in ways that society considers to be the other gender, that is a transgender phenomenon. Um, but I have some transgender people who identify themselves as transgender have reached out to me over the years and some very heartwarming responses that I've received. And so, you know, if it can do some people some good, you know, that's more than I could ever ask for. Yeah. And I can't stress enough to our listeners that like you said, this book is accessible. It's stories. It's stories. It's full of of humans, um, incredible biographies, and incredible people that you've really worked really hard and really compassionately, I must say, to bring back into the historic record. So go out and get it, read it. Peter, thank you so much for being here with us today. This was a real pleasure. You are most welcome. It was my pleasure. Dr. Bogue, thank you so much for being here. I mean, Cass, his work is so important and really brings up interesting points about the internal biases within our communities and our societies, and also the the profession of history itself. You know, there is this myth surrounding history that is based in fact and therefore entirely objective. But historians, including both of us, you know, we all come with our own internal biases, you know, and they're shaped by a number of factors. You know, history can be so much about what was not written by a historian. You know, just look at all of the debates surrounding the legacy of people like Christopher Columbus in this country. Why do we celebrate him as the so-called discoverer of America while ignoring all the atrocities that he and other colonizers committed against the indigenous people? You know, we are taught in school to celebrate the 4th of July, but not Juneteenth. You know, there's so much that we do not know. And Dr. Bogue is here to help us shift and decenter that particular perspective. Yeah, and I really cannot recommend this 
book enough. We really only touched on a small few of the many individuals in this book. Um, So be sure and pick up his book, Redressing America's Frontier Past. And also, if his work interests you, he's also written um, another incredible book called Same-Sex Affairs, Constructing and Controlling Homosexuality in the Pacific Northwest. And we will, of course, keep our eye out for the book he's currently working on, which explores parasite, which is the killing of a parent or relative and the agrarian crisis of the 1890s. Well, that does it for us today, Dress listeners. May you consider the legacy of these incredible individuals we learned about today. Next time you get dressed. If you have a moment, please take time to rate and review us on iTunes, and we love hearing from you. So please write to us with your fashion history mystery requests, and you can write to us at dressed at iheartmedia.com, or you could DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. You can also follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. Last but not least, thank you to our producers, Holly Fry, Casey Pegram, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each week. Catch you soon. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.